0: Here we have Noah Jones on the podcast for the very first time, a veterinary technician extraordinaire, specialized in lab animal?
1: Uh, lab animal, yes.
0: That's right. Um, and then you are also a human respiratory therapist and what was it, nation's highest scorer uh-huh. on respiratory therapy exam? Uh-huh. Is that it?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, they don't um, release publicly uh, scores, including, you know, highest scores or lowest scores. Um, or rather who scored those scores they did list that this the highest score on the exam in one of the newsletters they had sent out uh and it did coincide with the score that i received and and at the time when i scored on that that's what my instructors were telling me that you know that's the blah 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 blah, blah and it doesn't really matter
0: because um, <laughs> no what, not that we're here bragging or anything yeah. but it's uh you know
1: <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, supposedly that's the
0: case. Well, so how'd you end up one into, well, being a UK podcast, we we say veterinary nursing, but of course, recognizing that um, technician is the appropriate nomenclature in the state. So how'd you end up one into tech work? And then why did you sort of sidestep into a, a dual role of respiratory therapy?
1: Well, I, I started out as a uh, veterinary assistant and uh, just happened to, Uh, was kind of looking for a job, um, after moving back, um, after school, um, and when I was living in California and just responded to a, literally a newspaper ad, um, that just was, you know, looking for veterinary assistance, uh, you know, and the crazy thing is the ad, you know, essentially was, you know, no, no prior experience required, (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) because why why would you
1: so which is you know which just i think um depending on you know what what level of clinic you're looking at to a certain extent you know some clinics are literally just looking for hands um and that's that's what i started out doing is cleaning and um processing of materials and doing uh more computer work and then slowly moved into the uh, animal care side of things. And, um, particular clinic I started at was a GP practice during the day, but also received emergencies 24 hours a day and had a doctor on the premises 24 hours a day. So, uh, initially started off on the GP side, but quickly found that I really liked the emergency side of things. So started working overnights and worked overnights there for uh, a couple of years and then moved to another facility where I did swings and overnights at a specialty center, um, and uh, and quickly found that I really liked working with the most critically ill animals, uh, in particular the ones that uh, were in respiratory failure. And then kind of worked at several different hospitals in California there, uh, eventually becoming a registered veterinary technician uh, in California and really enjoyed working with patients in respiratory failure, in particular those that required the mechanical ventilator and sought additional instruction in that and just kind of
0: found that that was my niche. That's really creepy because it's very similar to my uh, hero origin story as well. Um, <laughs> I I knew I wanted to go to vet school, but I petitioned. I was working as a waiter and a restaurant manager in Florida at the time. and I went to literally every vet practice in town that said, you know, I want to go to vet school. Uh, I know nothing please hire me and uh, only one place called me back and they hired me on and I worked in general practice for three years um, as an unlicensed assistant and then moved into a 24-hour emergency referral centre, a town or two north and um, just fell in love with it and I suppose respiratory disease or respiratory medicine the word enjoy is difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, you feel bad for these guys. But my grandmother died of complications associated with COPD. So I think it's always hit quite close to home for me as a really horrible thing. And, and seeing the panic, I suppose, associated with respiratory disease, it's one of those things that I really want to treat quite, quite aggressively. So, well, it's enough about me <laughs> so uh, what we're going to talk about today is our potential pitfalls and pearls for patients with pulmonary problems because Noah likes eluceration and he suggested this title which I quite enjoy uh, so starting off now so you're working both in in the human environment and referral hospitals at this point are you mostly doing ICU work and then when you're doing ICU work is with the, the respiratory patients? Or are you seeing all cases or how, how's it working?
1: My wife and I moved from California to North Carolina and when we decided to move, I was, uh, I was working at the time in California at the university as a, as a nursing supervisor there and really, really enjoyed my position there. Um, and when we decided to move, Uh, I was going to take the opportunity to pursue a degree in respiratory therapy, never really planning on moving into human medicine. Honestly, when I enrolled in the degree program and uh, made that decision, I fully planned on simply obtaining the degree and the knowledge just to improve my veterinary patient care and what I could do for veterinary patients with respiratory disease. Um, But, uh, but inevitably after getting my associate degree in respiratory therapy and becoming licensed uh, and credentialed as a registered respiratory therapist, uh, I did uh, start a full-time gig at the human hospital here in town. Uh, It's a a trauma center and chest pain center. Respiratory therapy itself, encompasses care of patients with just about any type of respiratory ailment um and that could be anything from as minor as uh you know a a cold you know and you're you're assisting those patients who come into the emergency room because they have a cold um and uh and uh i'm gonna get on my soapbox for a second just because you have a cold please don't go to the emergency room
0: (laughs) um, <laughs> uh,
1: certainly if you are, um,
0: eat some soup,
1: certainly if you're having trouble breathing or having chest pain or anything like that, definitely should seek emergency care, but simply because you have a runny nose and a cough does not mean you need to go to the emergency room, but we do see those patients in the emergency room and we're frequently involved in, uh, the care of those patients, uh, either with, uh, simply administering, uh, you know, aerosol therapy to them to help with any, uh, type of uh, bronchospasm that may be going on or uh, doing um, patient education, uh, you know, before they, before they discharge them from the emergency department. So that's one end of the spectrum is, you know, very minor disease uh, and then anything in between up to, you know, obviously a patient that, um, you know, is, uh, is in cardiopulmonary arrest and requires life support and things like that. And we're the ones who are uh, managing the airway and the, the life support, you know, the ventilator, or even extracorporeal, uh, life support to help get that patient to their desired outcome. Anything in between also falls under our scope of practice uh, to a certain extent.
0: Yeah, I know from listening to a lot of the Human Emergency podcasts, they really rely on the RT team to support them. You feel a bit of jealousy, really, don't you, in the veterinary medicine, in that we don't have these really nice adjunct um, careers or, or sub-specialists?
1: I think that we... I think depending on what type of facility you work in, you certainly have that smaller veterinary hospitals or small referral centers uh, might have uh, certainly veterinary, uh, veterinarian specialists who specialize in very uh, specific subsets of the care of a patient. You know, they might deal with only a neurological problem, or if they're a veterinary neurologist, or they might deal with uh, only looking at the radiographs of that patient if they're a veterinary or radiologist. So they, they, there is specialization. And on the on the converse side of that, with veterinary technicians or veterinary nursing, uh, we also have you know uh, the the academies um, uh, that provide uh, credentialing as a veterinary technician specialist. So there is some degree of specialization in veterinary medicine. Um, You know, you could be a veterinary technician specialist who deals with only patients uh, with, uh, you know, who are seeing a cardiology service. And so you are strictly focused on dealing with problems of the heart or diagnostics of the heart, uh, things like that. And larger referral centers or universities certainly have much more specialization as far as staffing. You might work only in the radiology department and, you know, deal with taking x-rays. You might deal with uh, only in the anesthesia department and only only perform anesthesia all day, every day. Uh, you might work uh, as the CT technician and only perform CT uh, CT scans, you know. So I think it it exists to a certain extent in veterinary medicine, but, yeah, we don't have, you know, a veterinary – respiratory therapist, um, uh, much to my dismay. Um,
0: <laughs> oh, uh, which, not yet anyway.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I've, uh, you know, people have told me, you know, that we should, you know, create a, uh, a VTS Academy for, for respiratory, uh, you know, veterinary respiratory therapists and things like that. And I just don't think that there's a big enough market or need in the field right now for that. I think there's a huge need for, uh, education on, uh, on care of patients with respiratory failure, respiratory disease, um, as we'll talk about today. But uh, but I don't know that there's a specific academy need similar to you know the, the American College of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care or you know the European College of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care. I think it's important to have you know intensivists and criticalists uh, available to care for critically ill animals, including those in respiratory failure. Uh, however, I, I don't think that there's a huge need for the American College of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care to have a subspecialty uh, of just uh, pulmonology or, or, or pulmonary critical care. Um, you know, I think that um, that may change in the future, but I don't know that there's a huge need for it now.
0: Uh, it's good that you bring that up because we're hoping to have some of the AVEC team come on to talk about the technician specialties that are available and different routes about one, how to apply, what it involves, etc., etc. Um, but you mentioned care of patients with respiratory disease, so why don't we move right on into it? I, I expect the most of our respiratory patients that are walking in the door are going to get some sort of oxygen therapy. Um, how do you go about using oxygen um, when you've got patients coming in the door? I say more in in the emergency room setting rather than the ICU at this point, mm. and to uh, what are the things you need to keep in mind about oxygen? What are the potential risks and pitfalls of oxygen therapy?
1: I think historically, in both uh, both human medicine and veterinary medicine, we did not view oxygen uh, as um, something that could be bad for a patient, especially in the short term. I think, there's, I think every, most everyone is widely aware of the potential for oxygen toxicity, uh which is you know occurs when you are using you know high concentrations of oxygen for longer periods of time so i think i think that's a, a risk or um a potential uh, adverse effect that we're aware of but there are also um issues or potential risks with providing oxygen to patients in in the shorter term as well especially when it comes to masking a problem. You know, the classic example I would use is an animal that comes in uh, with, with cervical disease uh, that is, uh, you know, cyanotic or appears to be in respiratory distress uh, and is collapsed. And we go ahead and give that patient oxygen and uh, they pink up and their pulse oximeter is giving us, uh, you know, a reasonable reading but the problem with that patient isn't necessarily that they need oxygen of course the problem with typically with cervical myelopathy is, is you know that they have impaired uh, respiratory muscle function that results in hypoventilation so in this case you could provide oxygen to that patient and they may look a little bit better as far as their uh, their their physical exam and maybe their respiratory parameters but you haven't solved the problem, which is that they are, uh, you know, floridly hy- uh, hypercapnic. So uh, I think that when we have patients coming into the emergency room, uh, I want to preface this by saying I'm, I'm certainly not saying we should withhold oxygen from any patient that's presenting to the emergency room. Uh, but I do think we want to be thinking about what's going on with those patients uh, and certainly only providing the amount of oxygen that that patient provides. We have become uh, keenly aware uh, in the human field in the last several years that even short-term oxygen therapy that's unnecessary, uh, that results in hyperoxemia, uh, high high blood oxygen content, uh, that that can uh, cause adverse effects and um, uh, increase mortality and morbidity of that patient. Um, the, the most classic example of this that has become uh, come to light in the last several years is patients who are suffering from a heart attack, a myocardial infarction. And uh, in the pre-hospital setting, the thought used to be that we should um, provide them with as much oxygen as we can uh, with the hope of providing sufficient oxygen to their uh, ischemic uh, heart muscle. So we would go ahead and with a oxygen, a non-rebreather mask, essentially the, the most oxygen we can provide in a pre-hospital setting, we get them to the hospital and uh, provide definitive therapy for their heart attack. Uh, and somebody decided to do a randomized uh, controlled trial of providing uncontrolled uh, or unrestricted oxygen therapy, rather, in a pre-hospital setting. Uh, and then providing only enough oxygen to maintain normoxenia, you know, with the normal pulse oximetry rating 92 to 98 or something like that. Uh, and what they found was the patients who received unrestricted oxygen therapy actually had worsening infarction and more muscle death of their heart due to what is suspected as, uh, you know, free radical uh, and, um, you know, a reperfusion injury. uh, And the patients who received the more conservative oxygen therapy actually did better. So this went against everything we thought for for decades uh, related to providing oxygen therapy to myocardial infarction patients. And I think that um, there's been other studies that have come about, um, you know, uh, in, in the human field. We don't have any definitive veterinary data on any of this but we don't have any reason to think why the same physiology shouldn't apply to veterinary patients. So I think it's important to provide oxygen therapy in the emergency room, but make sure that you are monitoring oxygenation in those patients. We don't need a patient to have a pulse oximetry reading of 100%. We want that patient to have a normal pulse oximetry reading, but hyperoxemia is potentially just as detrimental as hypoxemia as well.
0: Oh man, so much important info in there. Should we see if we can unravel some of that? Absolutely. Uh, um, so measuring pulse ox in the emergency patient, how successful are you at this? And are you using the typical uh, hinged probe or are you using some of the, like the Massimo taped on ones? Or, or how are you going about measuring pulse ox in your emergency patients? Measuring uh,
1: pulse ox in and, uh, and patients in the emergency room uh, both human and veterinary patients, can it can be very difficult at times, uh, um, as we all are aware. And uh, I I think it's important to, again, not withhold oxygen from patients, but uh, it's important to titrate it. Uh, so if you can get a pulse oximetry reading, great, but if you can't, that doesn't necessarily mean to abort everything, obviously. We, I think there are some pulse oximeters and some pulse oximetry technology that, um, you know, we've come a long way in the last uh, uh, couple of decades. Um, so I think we now have pulse oximetry technology, um, you know, with uh, historically pulse oximetry technology looked at, uh, you know, two different wavelengths of, uh, of light uh, that's passed through a tissue bed. Uh, and the monitor is able to differentiate, in theory, um, pulsatile versus non-pulsatile flow uh, and only looks at absorption uh, of the pulsatile flow and is able to essentially uh, calculate uh, the amount of light absorption uh, by the pulsatile flow and give you a, an oxygenation reading of that pulsatile flow is, in theory, how it's supposed to work. But as we all know, motion artifact, and especially in patients that have poor perfusion, then the monitor can confuse, uh, you know, the pulsatile flow is not very pulsatile uh, and is on par with the venous pulsations, uh, you know, you can get uh, confusion by the monitor. Some of the newer technology, I think, is better at this. They use, rather than simply only using two uh, light um, wavelengths, they use multiple uh, light wavelengths. Um, uh, uh, of, of, one of the monitors and, and there are several monitors that I believe use this, but to one of the monitors that uses this type of technology is the Massimo monitors where they use their rainbow technology and the rainbow technology simply just refers to that. They're using multiple wavelengths of light to determine pulsatile from non-pulsatile flow. Um, as well as looking at, uh, multiple different types of hemoglobin, uh, light absorption. That's why some of these new monitors are able to give you, you know, a, um, or carboxyhemoglobin saturation, a methemoglobin saturation and things like that uh, versus just an oxyhemoglobin saturation. Uh, and I think some of the monitors are also even actually able to give you a hemoglobin level non-invasively, um, simply just by passing light through the tissues. So I think some of this newer technology, we have a little bit, um, uh, a little bit of an advantage compared to what we used to, but inevitably we still have those patients that we just can't get a reading on uh, and I think at that point, we should be strongly considering uh, getting a, a blood gas on them. we We use a lingual pl- probe typically. Um, uh, we have massimo pulse oximeters at our facility. and uh, you know, I'm certainly uh, no conflict of interest here or anything. Um that's just what we use. Uh, and uh, they have a lingual probe uh, that um, that we typically use on most of our patients. Uh, you know, you can also use the transflectant sensors. Uh, you know, and try and get, uh, you know, uh, the skull, you can try and get a reading uh, or, you know, a rectal probe, you know, there's lots of options. And I try and move through each different option and see if I can get a reading. And if ultimately, I'm not getting a reading that is uh, believable, that's not matching a pulse rate, doesn't have a good signal strength, things like that, then, uh, you know, we kind of abort and, and look at other options. I think the important thing is if you're getting a reading you don't like, that doesn't mean it's wrong. And I'm sure we've all been in situations like that before where you're getting a low pulse oximetry reading uh, and, you know, somebody saying, well, I don't believe that for, you know, because of X, Y, or Z. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that you can have a patient that's hypoxemic with pink mucous membranes. You know, uh, cyanosis doesn't really occur until you're getting on par of about 70% on your pulse oximetry reading. One third of your hemoglobin is desaturated. So um, don't rely on cyanosis to uh, predict or rule out uh, hypoxemia.
0: I am mystified by some of the attitudes towards pulse oximetry, because it seems like before someone puts the pulse ox on, they've already made up their mind about what the number is going to be. And if they see something that doesn't match up with their expectations, then essentially it's ignored. And and very rarely do we see that followed up with something like arterial blood gas. So, you know, these these instruments are lovely. They exist in the ER. Uh, maybe we're not using them in, in an ideal fashion. So logistics of, of getting arterial blood gases, you know, you've got a large breed dog um, you know, the bigger the vessel, usually the, the easier to hit. But do you have any any tips for getting those arterial samples and then different places to go? Um, let's say most people will go from the dorsal pedal artery. Uh, I'd like to go sometimes from the the tail artery, but what's your, your typical approach to lead sampling?
1: Definitely patient dependent, obviously. Um, like, like you kind of alluded to there, larger patients, um, you might have more options uh, or uh, poten- potential
0: sites. You got a, a growing musician in the background there?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, she's, uh, she's got this little piano uh, that she loves to play. Um, so you might have more sites available for potential analysis um, or uh, arterio uh, puncture in a larger patient versus a smaller patient. In general, I try and go for the dorsal fetal artery. Um, you can certainly go femoral. Uh, the tail is an option as well, though I personally have not had uh, huge luck with, uh, with uh, obtaining samples from the coccygeal artery. Um, I think that's um, one thing that we use in human medicine for obtaining samples and certainly both vascular access and arterial cannulation as well uh, is the ultrasound. So uh, I frequently will use an ultrasound to identify a vessel and help guide my needle into the into the artery uh, with with great success. Uh, I think most of the published human data shows that uh, by using the ultrasound, you can essentially increase your first first stick success to about 100%, you know maybe 99%. Um, so a pretty pretty significant increase in success rate just by using the ultrasound. So uh, I would say if folks are uh, struggling with, um, with obtaining samples or have questions about that, one of the best things to do would be to, you know, ideally take a lab somewhere. Usually IVEX, uh, you know, the Interma- International Veterinary University Care uh, Symposium has uh, labs, um, either wet labs or dry labs that uh, discuss uh, arterial cannulation. Uh, usually it's uh, an advanced task, uh, vascular access lab or, certainly, sometimes in the uh, uh, anesthesia lab, sometimes they'll, uh, they'll perform arterial cannulation. But um, uh, so, ideally, take a lab or have somebody come to your facility, um, you know, work with cadavers potentially. Um, but ultimately, uh, it's just practice. The more you do it, the better you get at it, just like anything else. Um, so, I would say practice, 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 do as many of them as you can, uh, and then they just become second nature to a certain extent and don't be afraid to try and use the ultrasound using the linear probe of course uh, to uh, to obtain a sample.
0: I was very fortunate during my internship to have the chance to work with the anesthesia department for a, a number of weeks and they're doing tons, well essentially every patient that's going through is getting an ultrasound guided block at this point and they've got some really good um, practice models that they've made from different gels with Um, things embedded in it to really practice those fine motor skills and those micro skills that are associated with um, either guiding your needle to somewhere. Um, And I think most people in emergency medicine are using ultrasound a lot now, especially for things like abdominal synthesis, thrachocentesis, cystocentesis. Maybe we're not that good at getting into smaller areas. So if anyone's really keen to practice that I think it'd be quite easy and there are recipes online for making sort of gel blocks or even gelatin blocks where you can um, embed a a fluid line or something inside of them and then just practice keeping your um, probe hand very still and then trying to visualize the needle going into tissue because I think that's probably the the biggest stopper for most people is you have your needle in but it's not in line with the probe so you're trying to move your probe around but then you're losing your your vessels so um yeah some deliberate practice towards advancing those skills can go a really long way especially for the uh, thing uh, even placing things like central lines um i think it's it's a really handy thing to learn um thank you for that that was a, a lovely master class in uh, in some oxygenation so Another thing I wanted to talk about is using a, uh, oxygen in the emergency room and we've got a, a tendency, especially on a very busy shift, to either start patients on oxygen and then put them into an oxygen tent or an oxygen cage. And if you're lucky enough to have an oxygen cage where you can control temperature, control humidity, monitor that percent, then uh, God bless you because that's a really nice, nice bit of kit to have. Um, but I suppose... Oxygen therapy can be quite dangerous because it, it gives you a bit of false sense of security because they might not be able to stabilise if you're not correcting their underlying condition. So you talked about a myelopathy earlier, um, not something immediately correctable. But if they've got a pneumothorax, pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, some sort of arrhythmia, then putting them in oxygen and leaving them in there, then either going to get worse or at the very least they're not going to get better until you provide some definitive care. Um, and again I think that's a really great place for ultrasound to come in because all of our fast scanning you know you can diagnose uh, pleural effusion pericardial effusion um, maybe in something like a a diaphragmatic rupture um, or pulmonary edema very quickly with minimal stress to the patient and provide some definitive care right right then and there or at the very least after a bit of sedation with some butorphanol, some midazolam, some methadone, whatever you've got lying around and letting them settle down and and doing that. So another thing I wanted to talk about is uh, our good brachycephalic friends and when they come into the ER with their typical upper airway obstruction or our our laryngeal paralysis dogs, what are your your criteria or in your mind, um, what are the dogs that you want to, or cats, that you want to just Cannulate and anesthetize and intubate immediately. You know how do you go about differentiating those from your typical dyspnea patient?
1: Yeah, I would say um, that you know there's several indications for intubation and mechanical ventilation. You know, obviously if you're measuring oxygenation, uh, certainly if they remain moderately uh, hypoxemic despite sufficient oxygen therapy that would be an indication. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be getting a blood gas on that patient, but if you're not able to get them, you know, above 90% or, uh, uh, you know, on a, on a pulse oximeter, despite, you know, 50, 60, 70% oxygen, then realistically they have such a degree of impairment and shunt that they probably need to be intubated and have positive pressure ventilation. So that's, that's a more, Objective way to determine. Same thing with uh, hypercapnia. Uh, you know, of course, it's a little more difficult to measure non-invasively. You can use the cannulas. I've had variable success using the side stream cannulas that uh, measure uh, entitled carbon dioxide via a nasal cannula. Um, you can certainly also place a, uh, you know, nasal insufflation yeah. tube, a nasal catheter. Uh, and essentially uh, attach a side-stream capnography unit to the catheter and get it that way. But uh, I think realistically that um, I haven't had all that great a success in an emergent setting uh, obtaining readings that way. Certainly monitoring in an ICU setting, I've been able to get some readings that way. But in the ER, especially in a distressed patient, I don't think you're going to be able to get a nasal and tidal reading on a patient very reliably. So you, you probably need a blood gas in order to meet that criteria for intubation and ventilation, which would be uh, significant hypercapnia, uh, you know, with a uh, car- uh, partial pressure of arterial carbon dioxide greater than 60 with a pH of less than 7.3. <clears throat> so uh, the third most commonly cited uh, indication for intubation is, you know, significant respiratory distress With impending decompensation or impending respiratory arrest or impending, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. Essentially saying the patient looks so bad that you really feel like they need to be intubated and placed on a ventilator, Uh, whether that being, you know, a ventilator, your hands squeezing a bag or a mechanical ventilator. Uh, And that one is certainly the most subjective uh, and arguably the hardest to. Decide. Although usually, what I tell people is, when you have that patient present to your ER, there, there's no question in your mind. You know that that patient needs to be intubated. Uh, you know your your
0: clinical yeah. They routine. look exhausted, exactly. don't they? They're just breathing entirely with their chest. Yeah.
1: So I think there's um, you know uh, I think there's some things we can look at in those patients to help guide us uh, in our decisions if you're if you're on the fence. Usually I say if you're on the fence, that probably means you need to be, unless you're saying, do I need to intubate this patient? And your immediate answer is no. <laughs> if you're saying, do I need to intubate this patient? And you're like, uh, I don't know, maybe, usually that means you probably need to intubate them. Uh, and and that's, my, that's my rule of thumb, so to speak. Um, you can look at things like paradoxical breathing patterns, uh, which indicate diaphragmatic fatigue and impending failure. You can look at things like uh, retractions. Certainly, you should be looking at every patient the same way coming through your ER, which is you know you're pre- performing your primary assessment initially, uh, doing your ABCDE, uh, and and really based on that primary assessment, you should be determining pretty pretty quickly whether that patient has a patent airway uh, and is breathing adequately or not. Um, but some of that comes with experience and clinical intuition. So it, I would say it is, it is difficult. Um, you know, there's other indications for mechanical ventilation, which you alluded to some of them. Uh, obviously a patient that uh, is dead, uh, you know, in cardiopulmonary arrest uh, requires intubation and, uh, and ventilation uh, in conjunction with chest compressions. Uh, patients that are in uh, significant shock states with significant respiratory effort. So one of- one of these that comes to mind is a patient in you know, cardiogenic shock uh, with pump failure uh, that uh, requires, uh, that, that's looking terrible. They may not have a pulmonary problem, so to speak, but they're in shock such that they are in severe respiratory distress. And what actually, what actually happens in those cases is you have what's called myocardial steel. And essentially, myocardial steel is where you have the uh, respiratory muscles normally don't require uh, a large amount of cardiac output, a large amount of your uh, oxygen delivery. However, in respiratory distress states, uh, they can require uh, you know up to 60 or 70 percent of total oxygen delivery. So, so a significant increase. Um, In respiratory distress, they can have a significant increase in uh, oxygen demand, those muscles. And if you have impaired oxygen delivery already to the heart, the brain, the liver, the kidneys, because you're in a shock state, those respiratory muscles then are going to essentially steal cardiac output and oxygen delivery away from those other more vital organs. Um, So by intubating that patient and ventilating them, you're removing their work of breathing and then that oxygen delivery and cardiac output can go to more essential life functions although obviously muscles of respiration are relatively essential um <laughs> but uh but you get what i'm saying essentially you can you can improve that patient's shock state simply by taking away their work of breathing
0: and when you're doing that are you anesthetizing them or ventilating them for any set period is this just sort of a a reset i mean you have them down for an hour and then you're hoping to wean them off and in- extubate them? Or is this a half day, day, multiple day thing, obviously patient dependent, but in your experience, is this usually a short term or a, a longer term um, issue that we're dealing with?
1: Yeah. Typically um, I would say, I would say, we well, usually when, when I, when, when this is typically performed, uh, is, um, is, uh, is patients that are in uh hypovolemic shock, uh, is when I typically see this. So these are patients that have suffered a trauma that have come in uh, and either uh, are uh, significantly altered, and this, this happens in both human medicine and veterinary medicine, um, that, uh, that they come in and they are in shock and uh, you know maybe have significantly altered mental status because of their shock or because of head trauma or whatever the case is. And the decision is made to intubate that patient to protect their airway and relieve their work of breathing, uh, and you know, uh, and facilitate uh, diagnostics, radiographs, CT scan, whatever you might be doing. So I would say the majority of the time, you know, that that patient, if that patient's sick enough to require intubation and ventilation initially, usually they're sick enough to require it on a longer term, um, you know, more than just an hour. But 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 certainly there are cases that come in that look terrible that once you fluid resuscitate them. Uh, and obtain definitive therapy, whether that be surgery or, uh, or whatever the case might be, that once you correct their shock state, they can be extubated. Because again, you're not intubating them because they have uh, lung injury. Uh, you're intubating them because they have shock and you're trying to improve their oxygen delivery to their more vital organs. It is a, it is a fine line, of course, because you're going to be giving them anesthetics, which inevitably will impair their uh, you know, their cardiovascular function, depending on which anesthetics you're using. Uh, but more often than not, uh, in those patients we're, we're using a, uh, you know, an etomidate and, uh, and a paralytic mixture, um, you know, in order to, uh, adequately sedate them, uh, and then, uh, paralyze them to remove their respiratory effort, uh, and then just provide the, uh, you know, mechanical ventilation, uh, uh in the interim, you know, ongoing sedation, uh, is variable, um, but typically, especially in trauma patients, I like to use ketamine with any number of other drugs, because uh, ketamine appears to be tolerated relatively well in trauma patients, uh, and uh, and also provides a little bit of analgesia as
0: well, as we all know. The wonder drug. Yeah. The golden child of emergency medicine, ketamine. Um, yeah, I talked about that recently in, in another podcast about cats, and cats are, are really big for respiratory distress and shock, having um, their lungs as their shock organ so um, it's interesting you talk about this this intubation because I am i don't really hesitate to intubate and I had a, a brachycephalic who came in for uh, paraparesis and was just getting so worked up despite some sedation, despite some pain relief, um, you know he was going towards obstruction and you know, hit him with the propofol uh, hum, intubated him and an hour later he was extubated and just sitting on my lap and chilling out, so from an approach to induction and intubation, I suppose if you're planning on intubating and you're sup- planning on ventilating, what you really need is an exit strategy. So let's say you are unable to provide definitive care in your facility and you need to transfer these patients. Um, in the UK, it's actually illegal to transfer oxygen without a license a lot of practices will will still do it you know with an oxygen canister in the back of the car i don't know if it's the same thing um in the states but let's say for some reason um you can't get a hold of a veterinary ambulance or something of the sort do you have any tips for transferring these guys to a referral facility oh uh,
1: yeah i mean that it's yeah from a certainly from a uh... Certainly, from a legal perspective, there's there's concerns there, uh, and and I would definitely refer people to uh, discussing that with their um, with their legal advisor for their practice, because I know that there is potential for if your license is only for you know a um, Uh, you know, the premises uh, that sometimes there's different licensing that's required for a mobile practice, which is essentially what you're doing when you're transporting a patient uh, with any type of ongoing therapy. Now, if you are, uh, I I think how, uh, how I've seen it discussed before, at least in the States here is you can prescribe oxygen to an owner uh, who can then provide oxygen to that patient during transport. Uh, is how I've seen it done before because you can you can prescribe oxygen for home use um, uh, in some uh, in some uh, locales. So, but obviously that still presents the issue of you know essentially you're discharging an animal with an artificial airway from the hospital uh, under anesthesia and depending on which anesthetics you're using you can't really send those home with the owner. So uh, definitely some legal questions there that I am yeah. not privy to. Uh, the answers. Uh, as far as the logistics from a medical or technical side, um, most of the time when I, and at least in my career and in my experience, have had to do this, we've used a commercial ambulance service and animal ambulance service. Um, when I was living in California, there were several companies doing this, uh, and essentially you would call them for a critical care transport um, and they would come and essentially pick up the animal uh, and be able to transport the animal to a, you know, a tertiary care facility. Um, And uh, uh, we uh, at the practice I'm at now in in Western North Carolina, we are the, uh, the, we are the tertiary care facility in the area here. Um, uh, And the next closest facility that we would refer to, Uh, is essentially, you know, several hours away. Uh, So um, we don't typically refer any animal that has an artificial airway. We'll maintain all those animals at our facility. Um, But if you are at a facility where that's required, um, I would just make sure you're observing any legal ramifications. And then, uh, yeah, transporting in the back of a car is um, arguably unsafe. But if that's your only option, uh, you know, versus the animal surviving or being euthanized, um, you know, it's uh, it's a tough call. Uh, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that one, honestly. Um, but uh, I would say um, I've certainly done that. I've sat in the back of a station wagon before, bagging an animal and transported. To my house. <laughs> Been there, done that. Uh, and it's less than ideal, but um, you know, we got to transport.
0: If it's all you got. Yeah. What I will say is, if you do not have an amber bag or amber bags in practice, go out and get one now. They're dirt cheap. Um, I bought some on eBay for my last practice, and they're so handy to have around, especially in in a code. If you're looking just to um, provide some breaths with or without oxygen, then in this scenario, they are are ideal and um, inexpensive. They are... Well, ideally not reusable, but most practices will will reuse them. Um, so get it sorted. Um, what I also wanted to ask you about is probably one of our more controversial things in veterinary medicine, and everyone's got their own little protocol, but nebulization <laughs> So uh, I remember when I first started as an assistant, that was what, back in 2006? Um, we were nebulizing all of our sort of... Kennel coffee or respiratory dogs with, uh, I think saline and gentamicin in these little sort of plexiglass uh, covered kennels. So, how useful is nebulization in veterinary medicine? Who are you using it for? Because I I have heard wind of you know nebulizing with things like Um, furosemide. um Now people are doing intranasal serenia meropotent so um from your side of the the picture what are you using it for
1: god are people really doing intranasal uh serenia god i would think that would just burn so bad
0: apparently it's some it's quite nice for rhinitis it's dilute um but you know again it's the other other wonder drug isn't it the substance p inhibitor that does everything under the sun from uh anti-inflammatory to visceral pain to nausea to uh everything else
1: interesting i hadn't heard that one before um yeah so uh, aerosol therapy um uh there the the ongoing joke in human medicine is, is is you know uh is whatever the patient uh you know significant ailment that the patient is there for and is very sick the joke is i just give him some give him some albuterol uh, and that'll fix everything, uh, because you know it's arguably uh, very overprescribed in human medicine, uh, and many patients receive aerosol therapy, medicated aerosol therapy at least, uh, with bronchodilators that have no indication uh, to use a bronchodilator. Um, so, and I think the same thing happens in veterinary medicine where we perform nebulization on animals. Uh, either with bland aerosol or medicated aerosol that potentially don't have an indication for said aerosol therapy. There's really not any great evidence to support, yeah, at least in my experience, a lot of times when we're giving aerosol therapy to, uh, to patients, it's a lot of times for a pneumonia. Uh, you have a pneumonia patient and you want to nebulize and coupage them. And there is literally, absolutely no evidence to support that practice. Um, yet it seems to be pervasive throughout veterinary medicine and, and human medicine, for that matter. It's it's frequently prescribed in human pneumonia patients, uh, and there's really no evidence to support that it improves outcomes or does anything but increase the cost of health care. Um, so, uh,
0: and your nurses will love you for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, was In my own literature search, what I came across was that... Um, coupage in patients with infectious respiratory disease actually increased uh, length of hospital stay and I think their proposed mechanism was that by disrupting um, either the mucosillary escalators or um, displacing bacteria and allowing them access to other alveoli or elsewhere they're actually spiking fevers and taking longer to get out of the hospital
1: yeah, I've I've heard that before. I'm not necessarily um, I'm not totally convinced that that makes a hundred percent physiologic sense um, uh, in the in the fact that it should really make that drastic of a difference. Um, uh, I, if I remember correctly, and it's been years since I've since I've looked at that study, but um, it wasn't, it was not a randomized trial. Um, it was retrospective in nature. Um, and, uh, and the, it was not well controlled. It wasn't, uh, you know, um, uh, it, it wasn't, uh, the, the grouping wasn't, um, wasn't very robust. Um, it's an interesting study. I'm certainly not trying to bash it, but obviously what we'd be looking for, you know, to determine, uh, if that indeed was true, that, that coupage, uh, um, worsened disease was we'd be looking for you know a randomized trial uh with um with propensity matched analysis and blah blah blah, blah. so um so i would say that it, it in theory that could happen you know if you break something loose from alveoli number one and then it moves part of it into alveoli number two and now you have two alveoli that are contaminated uh that that, that makes sense but i don't know that that would um I think usually when you when you develop a pneumonia, um, you know, it's, it's relatively diffuse um, unless you have a some atypical low bar pneumonia. That's that's, um, you know, not uh, not uh, not widely dispersed. So,
0: yeah, I'll I'll have to get a hold of the paper and, and put it in the show notes. And I suppose with the prevalence of aspiration pneumonia, especially in our ICU patients, that would not be an overly complicated Uh, residency project especially even doing a a multi-center project i don't think yeah
1: i mean uh, i mean i think there's room for further study with that with that topic i think more importantly is uh regardless of what evidence we have for um for potential harm from nebulizing and coupaging is is uh, potentially uh, more importantly we don't really have any evidence to show that it's beneficial um uh, that it's helpful uh at least at my facility, we, uh, you know, performing a nebulization treatment on an animal is not cheap by any means. It's also not all that expensive, but, you know, if I had, you know, $25 to use towards, uh, you know, another injection of an antibiotic or $25 to use towards a nebulization treatment, uh, I, I'd probably rather spend that client's funds on an additional injection of an antibiotic or an additional six hours in oxygen or whatever the case is, um, rather than uh, on a therapy that's not been proven um, and doesn't have a whole lot of physiologic basis to improve you know the thought process is is if you nebulize you can get those water droplets down into the airways uh, to help break up the secretions and improve uh, improve the animal's condition and, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense just from uh, i mean by the time that the uh, first of all you know most aerosols uh, aren't going to make it down to the level of the alveoli <laughs> Um, just because of the sheer size of the particles and the size of the airways. So that's number one. They're typically going to uh, deposit either most often in the upper airways, uh, and some of it will make it down into the lower airways, but certainly not to the level uh, of the terminal bronchioles. Um, The the other thing to consider is that, that the the, the way the airway is designed is by the time the gas reaches the level of the terminal airways, it's already hundred percent humidified. Uh, so there, there's no, there's no reason to consider humidifying or further increasing the amount of, uh, water vapor in a gas, um, unless you're bypassing the upper airway, you know, obviously intubated or tracheostomy, uh, tracheostomy patients require humidification of the gas, uh, we can humidify gas that we're providing through a nasal cannula, but that's simply for comfort for the most part. There's no lower right. airway benefit to that. So I think the I think that um, uh, and I'll get off my soapbox here in a second. Uh, but um, uh, <laughs> I don't uh, I'm not a big fan of nebulization unless it's a medicated aerosol uh, and there's a specific indication for that medicated aerosol. I.e. you have an you have an asthmatic cat. That you're providing an aerosolized beta-2 agonist to, that absolutely makes sense physiologically. There's data to support that, and we should probably be doing that. Um, a resistant pneumonia, and you're aerosolizing an antibiotic. Absolutely, there's data to support that, and we should probably be doing that. But you know, just your run-of-the-mill pneumonia, do you need to be nebulizing gentamicin? Probably not. Um, you know, so uh, I think it's. Uh, I think it's important to look to the literature uh for some of this and not just rely on uh kind of the way we've always done it sort of deal
0: don't you ever get off that soapbox <laughs> <laughs> well so uh Shailen did a, a really good podcast with um kim who's a physiotherapist Hello. who came from the icu the human icu side of things and and working warm with the more critically unwell patients and her take on it was that really the best thing for our respiratory patients, especially the pneumonia patients is just getting them up and walking around and just trying to help mobilize a bit of secretions that way from a a bit of exercise. What's your take on, on how you support these guys when they're in the ICU? Uh, Absolutely. I
1: think the human data supports some degree of chest physiotherapy. especially in, uh, I think there's, there's some data to support that in infants and neonates. Um, the data is not as robust in adult patients um, as far as chest physiotherapy, uh, unless they have a specific indication, i.e. they are non-ambulatory, they have some type of neuromuscular disease or uh, you know some other type of disease that's causing retained secretions. Uh, impaired mucociliary escalator functions, such as cystic fibrosis or uh, chronic bronchitis, things like that. Uh, I think otherwise the data is relatively sparse to support uh, performing chest physiotherapy, but we have vast amounts of data for any number of different conditions from A to Z that say the sooner you get them up and walk them around, and the more they're walking around, the sooner they go home. So I think that we can extrapolate that to our patients. I'm not aware of any great data in the veterinary field to show that, uh, you know, getting them up and walking is superior to coupaging them. But I think we can assume the same thing if your patient's able to get up and walk and go for a walk outside or, you know, in the case of a cat, you know, go to a playroom, let them loose in a playroom to exercise, Uh, I think that we should be doing that versus uh, banging on their chest. You can tell a human, I'm gonna perform chest physiotherapy on you, and they can understand that most of the time, Uh, (laughs) um, uh, unless they're altered for any other reason. Um, And they can understand that that's why you're banging on their chest. You can't tell that to a dog or a cat. They don't necessarily understand why you're banging on their chest. So I think uh, it's gonna cause them undue stress and really not be all that beneficial. Um, the, the, most of the data in the human field related to chest physiotherapy and coupage, uh, also involves postural drainage, meaning if you have a, um, a, uh, right lower lobe infiltrate, uh, on your x-ray and a right lower lobe pneumonia, then you're going to put that patient in, um, uh, you know, um, a, a reverse Trendelenburg position, uh, with a 30 degree, uh, Incline uh, and turn them a quarter turn onto their left side and then bang on their right lower chest in order to maximize loosening of those secretions and then draining them into a larger airway. We're not going to be able to do that in our veterinary patients and put them in these weird positions and tell them to turn a specific way in order to maximize drainage. We're just going to bang on their chest and hope it does something. Um, So I'd say get them for a walk and quit banging on their chest.
0: Thank you for that. That was really great. Uh, I wanted to ask about steroids and why, um, in in the human side of things, they're so hot on steroids and pneumonia, whereas in veterinary medicine, um, we get very twitchy about the use of steroids, especially in infectious conditions. So, uh, what's the deal with that?
1: So I think um, I think that there is. Uh, um good evidence in the human field to support use of steroids in specific conditions, uh, especially chronic inflammation, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So, you know, you have a patient that comes in with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease who has chronic inflammation and they're having an exacerbation of that chronic inflammation where they now have an acute on chronic condition, uh, giving them a burst dose of steroids or a burst course of steroids, uh, has been shown to, uh, uh reduce the need for uh hospitalization uh and reduce the length of the exacerbation uh and uh, and if they are admitted to the hospital uh, uh a big thing that came out um with the uh, affordable care act uh one of the new requirements that was put into place was uh, this notion of readmissions so historically um we uh, in the human field would have a patient who would be admitted and you know, we'd be in a, not necessarily a rush, but it was in the patient. The patient didn't want to be there and wanted to go home. And certainly we as a hospital want to get that patient out of there because we all know that the longer a patient's in the hospital, the more sick they get. So, um, so I think that historically we were in, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, in a rush to get patients out of the hospital for good reason Um, and but what we were realizing is that sometimes these patients were leaving the hospital too soon or without the proper home care uh, and this was resulting in them being readmitted to the hospital relatively quickly so uh, the affordable care act here in the u.s uh, put in place um, uh, penalties essentially if you uh, for specific conditions one of them being chronic obstructive pulmonary disease if you have a patient who's admitted to the hospital for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease they're discharged from the hospital, and then they have to be readmitted for the same problem within 30 days, uh, you get penalized and uh, do not get any type of, uh, the hospital has to pay out of pocket for that readmission. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So, um, which, uh, which you know, uh, uh, on a separate note, if we all just take a moment to think about the implications of that for veterinary medicine, if we were to follow a similar model, uh, how that would vastly change some of the way we care for patients, uh, and, and uh, you know, our, our, discharge criteria for our patients. But, um, so, um, so if you have a patient, so uh, one of the benefits of steroids is that it reduces readmissions. Uh, so, um, so I think that, um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease definitely makes sense. There's a physiological, uh, you know, uh, basis there and certainly data to back that up. But I think with pneumonia, it's certainly an inflammatory condition, So it makes sense that giving an anti-inflammatory would help. Um, I think the concern comes with the negative effects of steroids when dosed inappropriately uh, on the immune system with the fact that um, you're more likely to get immune suppression as you're using higher doses. In dogs see significant gastrointestinal side effects uh, and we we don't see that in the same way in human patients. So, um, so I think that in dogs, uh, and cats for that matter, uh, I think using steroids is something that should be considered, but of course, if the problem is it's a bacterial pneumonia, uh, giving steroids, isn't going to fix the problem, which is the infection that really a lot of the time, if they're, if they're that sick, that they're presenting to your clinic, of course, remembering that not every uh, not every, um, uh, we don't always prescribe antibiotics to patients that present with pneumonias in human medicine, and the same should be extrapolated to cats and dogs, especially with, uh, a lot of this, uh, canine flu, uh, you know, circulating in various parts of the country over here, at least. Um, I don't know if y'all have the same issue over there with, uh,
0: with, uh, canine flu. No, we've been very fortunate, but now that I suppose our, our pet passport restrictions have lifted up a bit... Um, we're certainly seeing more of an influx of infectious disease, certainly tick-borne diseases and other things. Mm. So I it's on the horizon. I'm cautious, but hopefully um, we'll be okay. They, what was the biggest outbreak recently over there was um, dogs had been imported from from where Thailand or, or Vietnam and they'd sort of made it through and um, all three dogs had had Canine influenza. is that? Is that correct? Yeah,
1: I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure uh, as far as from a from a foreign source, but I know that um, the West Coast had a big outbreak earlier this year, uh, and I believe in some in some locales is still battling uh, uh, significant canine flu uh, disease. And uh, as well as the Northeast, I believe um, uh, also uh, more recently had some flu cases. Um, So uh, I think, uh, you know, obviously, if a patient has a viral pneumonia, then there's no indication for uh, for um, antibiotics uh, unless you think that there's a secondary infection occurring, which does happen. Um, But more importantly, at that point, if you have a patient that has such bad inflammation in their lungs, then it makes sense to give them a dose of anti-inflammatory medication, such as a low dose of anti-inflammatory steroids. Um, But I think it's got to be cautious, of course
0: no absolutely um I suppose that that moves us into things like airway sampling and uh, I'm always quite keen to do something like an airway wash um, or a tracheal wash to try and figure out one what our sensitivity profile is and and look at our cytology. Um, I think again it's it's sort of like anesthetizing patients or intubating them there's there's a lot of hesitance to sedate or anesthetize these guys to get airway samples because of concerns over their their stability and and otherwise but i suppose on the flip side the argument is always if you've got a sensitivity profile you're going to treat those patients more quickly and more appropriately chances are you'll probably get get it right with a bit of amoxiclav in the beginning to start out with but if for some reason there is resistance or there's some other sort of uh, I mean, we don't really get fungal disease in the UK apart from Malassezia, um, but we do get lungworm and um, other airway diseases over here, which are, are quite nasty. So having that airway sample is always really, really nice. Um, and I did for the very first time a, a transtracheal wash, um, which was quite exciting, in a in a greyhound who was really quite obtunded, So... Um, with some pain relief and local anaesthetic, we were able to to get it without anaesthetising, um, which was a bit of a, a revelation, I suppose. I suppose if you, unless you're working in a larger centre, those are the the sort of techniques you aren't exposed to on a regular basis. Like you were talking about um, the the retrograde intubation, um, which I'd never seen before with the um, over the wire um, nasal intubation. Mm-hmm. Um, have you done that in in a veterinary patient ever? Uh,
1: re- the retrograde intubation. Yeah, we had a bulldog who um, who we performed that on. It had arrested, uh, and um, and uh, it was a snake bite. Actually, uh, it's a big big thing in this part of the country. Is uh, uh, venomous snakes uh, similar to I guess other parts of the country, and, and obviously you know Australia is probably the, the mac daddy of uh, venomous snake uh, uh, cases. Um, of course, our our cases here. Uh, are uh, of the pit viper family, and so we—it's uh, more of an anticoagulation uh, effect. So they, um, right. Uh, so, but uh, but s- swelling. Uh, so they get bit on their muzzle. Um, this particular dog—it was a bulldog that got bit on its tongue, believe it or not—and uh, you can, you can oh imagine <laughs> you can imagine the problem there. And uh, and I think the dog presented and um, uh, and was already in severe distress, and by the time uh you know we we got to the point where we were intubating the dog uh the airway I mean, there were, you couldn't see anything in there so um we did do a retrograde intubation in that dog uh while all that was going on the dog suffered uh, cardiopulmonary arrest we did where we were able to get the dog intubated uh using retrograde intubation uh, uh but the dog did not survive um so n of one for me at least it's um it's, it is a tactic that's used in human medicine uh, in difficult airway scenarios, um, which in human medicine we have a lot more of a problem with patients with difficult airways than we do in veterinary medicine. Uh, so it's a tactic that's used, but I would say more often than not what we do in human medicine and what I've done in several veterinary patients is fiber optic intubation where you use your, where you use your flexible bronchoscope uh, and feed an endotracheal tube onto the flexible bronchoscope and feed your bronchoscope down, uh, and, uh, using your camera, guide it into the glottis and into the trachea and then feed your endotracheal tube off the flexible bronchoscope into the trachea. Um, and that works nice. like a charm. Uh, and, um, uh, and we use that relatively frequently in patients with difficult airways in human medicine. And I've done that in three cases, uh, three dogs that, uh, that we couldn't, uh, otherwise get intubated.
0: And then for your surgical airways, are you using a cracothyroid membrane or doing a a tracheostomy?
1: In veterinary medicine, we uh, tend to go straight to an emergent tracheostomy. Um, In human medicine, it depends on who's present at the resuscitation. Um, If it's an emergency room doctor, um, uh, emergency room physician, they typically, as with pre-hospital providers, Move to a uh, cricothyrotomy. Cri- cri- um, yeah. Just because it tends to be a little bit uh, a little bit quicker, uh, arguably, um, uh, and they don't do that many tracheostomies. Now, if it's a trauma patient that comes in and we're in the trauma bay and unable to establish airway access, and the trauma surgeon is there, a lot of times the trauma surgeon uh, tends to move with an emergent tracheostomy. Uh, just because they, they are performing those a lot more often and they can do them relatively quickly. So it really depends on the provider. Um, I would say that most of the surgical airways that we deal with in human medicine are also tracheostomies, similar to veterinary medicine.
0: Oh, that's interesting because I had this this idea that pretty much everything uh, was done via, via a crike and I sat through the canine tactical care wet lab at IVEX um, and they were also advocating... Um, Using the the Craig technique for a lot of animals, mostly because they're they're teaching uh, military workers and medics and and pre-hospital care providers who are very used to doing that sort of technique. Right. So I suppose from their perspective, um, from a translational skill point of view, it's it's a lot easier to go through the the thorough membrane if that's what you're used to doing in a dog versus um a whole new technique so what do you i mean what are you working on right now i know you're doing a lot of cpd or or continuing education around around the states what have you got got coming up any exciting projects or research or anything you want to chat about
1: you know uh as you as you alluded to earlier i work um uh, i really uh in theory it's part-time at several places but it ends up probably being full-time at several places um (laughs) uh, but uh part-time at the human hospital um Uh, similar to veterinary medicine, um, you know, you can become credentialed and obtain your license, uh, as a veterinary technician or or as a veterinary nurse, uh, and then obtain a specialty certification if you are going to specialize and work in a specific facet of veterinary technology or veterinary nursing. It's the same thing for respiratory therapy. So, um, we have, uh, you know, you can become credentialed as a respiratory therapist. And then there's uh, specialty certifications. So uh, I, I, I obtained my uh, specialty certification as an adult critical care uh, specialist. Uh, and so I work specifically at the hospital in the emergency room and in the intensive care units um, providing care to uh, critically ill patients. Um, and, uh, and stay busy with that uh, two or three days a week. Uh, and then also work at the veterinary hospital uh, here in town, the referral center uh, and work as the training and development coordinator there, uh, and stay busy, uh, two or three days a week, um, uh, there, um, trying to, uh, keep the educational program there up to date and, uh, as, as well as working clinically there, um, when, uh, when i can uh i much prefer working clinically to working at a desk um but uh of course if somebody's not working at the desk then um a lot of times things just don't end up getting done um uh so unfortunately that means that some of us have to work at desks all you clinical veterinary technicians veterinary nurses uh try not to give your managers too much hassle because trust me they rather be <laughs> on the floor working with you but uh, but then your schedule wouldn't get done and your training wouldn't happen and all that so give them a pat on the back when you can
0: (laughs) preach it brother uh
1: and then and then yeah i do work in uh in in research i do some benchtop research uh mostly using uh, uh high fidelity lung simulators to simulate different breathing profiles uh and um uh and then uh you know one of the more recent projects i did was looking at aerosol deposition um by different methods um uh using a lung simulator and an anatomical model Uh, And so I do some benchtop research uh, and then also do uh, work in laboratory animal research. Obviously, I'm a veterinary technician specialist in laboratory animal research and research anesthetist. Uh, So typically, my involvement with lab animal research is um, not so much on the regulatory side or even the husbandry side, which are both uh, very important aspects of laboratory animal medicine. Uh, But I typically work more in the uh, operating theater, um, uh, administering anesthesia, monitoring anesthesia, and of particular interest to me, uh, managing the subjects on the mechanical ventilator. Um, uh, so uh, I do I work mostly with swine, uh, swine models, um, and um, my particular project right now involves a uh, therapeutic hypothermia device that uh, we are developing, and uh, hopefully um hopefully finishing our studies uh in animal subjects very soon and moving on to uh first in
0: human trials so what you're saying is your dream holiday would be out to eastern australia during tick season
1: uh absolutely i saw recent uh recent pictures and videos because at least from what i understand and i'm totally ignorant to this because i've never been to australia but i believe it is tick season right now i think um I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I believe somebody told me that at Ivex that they're now moving into tick season in Australia, um, and uh, saw some recent pictures and footage of uh, of some veterinary clinics, you know, with them, and they had, you know, five or six dogs on the ventilators, and yes, that would be uh, that would be a a fun a fun excursion, a fun uh, externship, I guess, to go uh, down there and gain some insights uh down there from from their extensive experience with mechanical ventilator patients so uh and hopefully uh bring bring some uh bring some insight from the human world down that i could uh, that i could share with them uh we've talked about that before um australia's high on our list for for a holiday uh but um not in the works just yet
0: all right um there's two more things i want to talk about and then i'll then i'll uh stop hassling you um number one is uh, prolonged oxygen administration, not in a in a cage. So um, either using prongs or cannulae. Um, and then I know we don't have a tremendous, well, or maybe even any evidence base to support this. But when you're placing nasal oxygen cannulae, are we measuring to the lateral canthus or are we measuring to the ramus of the mandible or does it not matter? Um, what's your What's your take on it?
1: I think it, uh, certainly depends on breed confirmation. Um, uh, so, uh, I think that, um, and depends on where you want the, the, the nasal catheter to terminate. Um, if you measure from the, uh, nary to the medial canthus, um, the catheter is more likely to terminate, uh, in the nasal cavity itself. Uh, versus if you measure from the nary to the lateral canthus, that tends to uh, coincide with the catheter terminating uh, more in the nasopharynx or even sometimes in the oropharynx, depending on the breed. Um, So I think that um, I don't know that there's a right way or a wrong way. Some patients will tolerate one better than others theoretically, and there might even be evidence to support this. At least I've read it in a textbook that measuring to the lateral cantus and the catheter terminating uh, more in the nasopharynx tends to result in less irritation because you don't have gas, uh, you know, uh, essentially um, injecting into the nasal cavity, it's gas injecting into the nasopharynx. Uh, again, I don't know that there's great data to support that, but I believe I've read that somewhere. Um, and uh, same thing with the mandible. It's just gonna make. It's just gonna mean it. Uh, you know, terminates further down uh, in the in the uh, in the oropharynx. Um, so I don't know that there's a right or a wrong answer. You can, uh, uh, I guess, um, try it one way in one patient, and it might not work the same way in the next patient. So just uh, be open to doing it differently with different patients. Don't get stuck in your ways, so so to speak.
0: Oh, you gotta check that ego at the door, brother. <laughs> you know you got to be flexible. Yeah. Um, so, finally, our most controversial topic and one of your favourites, endotracheal tube cuffing.
1: Yeah.
0: So, now, there's a couple of commercial devices available that allow us to measure um, pressure in the cuff. So, concern being traditional methods of Inflating the cuff to the point where we're leak checking and interestingly if you ever come to the UK, you'll notice this um, Pressure gauges on most anesthetic machines are not standard here at least in general practice um, If you go into a referral facility, certainly um, Especially like the really nice Dartex Ameda setups um, Pressure gauges everywhere, but for your average general practice I've not seen a single anesthetic system that has a uh, pressure monitor on it. So typically it's squeezing the bag with the uh, APL valve closed um, until you don't hear a leak. So what's your your take on one, how we can minimize risk to our patients? And actually, uh, are we actually seeing a clinically relevant detriment to patients who have an increased risk um, cuff pressure
1: so um so yes this is uh appears to be a very hot topic for some uh just looking at uh, i'm sure you're probably referring to some of the forums on, on on facebook where i've seen this topic come up recently um and uh and yeah interestingly enough um uh there is uh some data to support that Obviously. Uh, you know, cuffed endotracheal tubes are more likely to cause uh, you know um, tracheal complications than uncuffed uh, endotracheal tubes. But there's also data su- to support that uh, uncuffed tracheal tubes are uh, more likely to result in uh, uh, aspiration than uh, than cuffed endotracheal tubes. So I think there's uh, you know risk and benefit with both. I think the important thing to realize that uh, cuffed endotracheal tubes. Um, really uh, only the are uh, so, so the the thought the, the reason why cupped endotracheal tubes are potentially problematic are because if you over inflate the cuff you will impair uh, tracheal capillary pressure uh, and um, uh, and uh, therefore reduce uh, tracheal uh, mucosal blood flow so, uh, which is absolutely true and has been shown uh, in both laboratory animal models, as well as uh, you know, in uh, clinical, uh, clinical data, at least in the human field. I don't know that we have great clinical data in the veterinary field for this, for this stuff. Um, so uh, that then leads one to say, well, if the problem is that if I put too much pressure with the cuff on the tracheal mucosa, that uh, then perhaps I should uh, monitor and make sure I'm not overinflating my cuff, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I think that we, um, historically, in the way most of us are trained, are to use what's either called the uh, minimal leak test or the minimal occluding volume test. And essentially, the minimal leak test is you uh, essentially uh, inflate your cuff balloon. Uh, and then, uh, go ahead and give a breath to 20 centimeters of water and let gas out of the balloon, uh, deflate the balloon, uh, until the point where you have a small leak at 20 centimeters of water. And then you either tolerate that small leak, uh, at 20 centimeters of water, because you don't need to worry about uh, a leak at that, at that pressure, um, because you're not uh, ventilating the patient. Or if you're going to be ventilating a patient to that pressure, then you increase the volume in the cuff such that uh, you no longer have a, a small leak at that at that level essentially you have a minimal leak and you're testing your cuff uh, based on that minimal leak. the other option is to use the minimal occluding volume which is essentially you uh, give a breath to your patient and you fill the cuff with uh, with a syringe uh, uh, until you no longer have a leak at 20 centimeters of water uh, both methods essentially do the same thing it's just a matter of whether you inflate the cuff first and then deflate the cuff, or whether you slowly inflate the cuff. Those are really the two differences between the two methods. And those are both the methods that we utilize in human medicine as well. When we are intubating a patient uh, and uh, inflating the cuff, we're either supposed to use the minimal leak test or the minimal occluding volume. So the problem with that is, and what's been documented, and this is one of the things that we actually have pretty good data in veterinary medicine on, uh, is, uh, is that, um, that, that minimal leak technique or minimal occluding volume technique to inflate the cuff uh, uh, does not accurately predict what the actual cuff pressure is going to be against that tracheal mucosa. Uh, and this is especially true, uh, with the silicone tubes, the high pressure, low volume cuffs. Which are not really recommended to use anymore because it's it's impossible to monitor uh, cuff uh, tracheal mucosal pressure uh, with with those tubes because you have to inflate those cuffs to such a high pressure um, uh, that you don't know what that pressure against the tracheal mucosal is. If you use a low pressure high volume cuff, which is the cuffs that are typically found on most uh, polyvinyl chloride tubes, uh, that uh, that those Cuff pressures typically correlate relatively closely with tracheal mucosal pressure, um, although not always, <clears throat> but it's certainly better than anything else we have available. So, we, after getting the patient intubated and stabilized and placed on the ventilator placed on the uh, anesthesia device, uh, then measure cuff pressure in those patients uh, using a cuff manometer. And there's a couple different types of cuff manometers that are available on the market. You can also Create your own cuff manometer by uh, modifying a standard blood pressure sphygmomanometer that you use with your Doppler device. Um, so, uh, so, but or you can buy a uh, commercial cuff manometer. And essentially, you want to be measuring your cuff pressure to make sure that it's below what your theoretical uh, tracheal mucosal capillary pressure is. There's no way you'll be you will you will inevitably impair Lymphatic drainage because lymphatic pressure is relatively small um, or relatively uh, low. Uh, but if you, uh, so you'll end up with swelling in the airway, uh, especially with prolonged endotracheal intubation. But if you can minimize the pressure so that you're not impairing capillary flow, uh, then you should maintain perfusion to the tracheal mucosa uh, and not have any tracheal necrosis. Um, course, if you have a patient that's hypotensive, and I think there's also a veterinary paper on, on this, that talking about uh, tracheal mucosal pressures and cuff pressures in patients uh, that are uh, under anesthesia, suffering hypotension. And if your patient's hypotensive, then pretty much any cuff pressure is going to impair capillary pressure uh, or capillary blood flow. But um, all the more reason to be monitoring blood pressure on your anesthetized patients and maintain appropriate blood pressure.
0: Spectacular. Uh, well, I feel there's so much more we could talk about because I could just pick your brain for hours. Uh, but I'm going to release you from your bondage now. Uh, really, really thank you for your time, Noah. That was amazing.
1: No, no worries. Uh, happy to, happy to chat and, uh, always happy to answer questions. Um, uh, obviously it's
0: something I enjoy. Well, uh, well, we'll go ahead and put some, some various links and resources in the show notes as well. And if you've got any questions for Noah, then do get in touch. And I'm sure he'd be thrilled to pieces <laughs> to answer them for you. Um, any parting words of wisdom? Um,
1: do what you can with what you got is, uh, is kind of, you know, what, uh, what it comes down to. So um, if you have lots of resources available then uh, why not use them, you know? Uh, And if you don't, then do the best with what you have and uh, try and get the patient uh, somewhere where they can get definitive therapy. Um, But uh, I think all too often, we have the resources available and for any number of different reasons, we elect not to utilize those resources. And I think that's where we're doing our patients a disservice. So um, do what you can with what you got uh, and do as much as you can. um, uh, and, uh, And hopefully we can make a difference
0: nice that's that's a nice principle of optimizing patient care and not just providing patient care but but looking for ways that you can just do those small little things on a day-to-day basis that really affect patient care and i think that's um something that you and i are both very very geeky and passionate about so thank you um i'll see you around the the ecc world and uh yeah until next time
1: sounds good thanks elliot uh, we'll talk soon